Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome to the Mongol Empire podcast. This is episode 3.8 of The Rise of Temujin. In the previous episode, we finished with the conclusion of the battle at Kalakaljid Sands, where neither Temujin nor Onkan had been able to secure a decisive result. It had been a bloody encounter, and both men had paid a high cost for the collapse of the alliance. On Togrul's part, his son and heir had been critically injured, whilst Temujin had seen an important ally injured and was missing two of his heroes and his own son Ogodai. Today's episode is only going to cover a short period of time, no more than a few days or a week or so, and it will focus on the events that lead up to the sealing of the Baljuna Covenant to identify whether or not this event really was the lowest point in Temujin's career. With the break in the fighting, Temujin took the opportunity to remove his beleaguered army from the field. He put a good distance between himself and the Koreid camp, and then ordered the horses to be put out to pasture. Expecting another Koreid attack, Temujin instructed his men to stay alert and prepare their weapons. But as the new day dawned, there was no sign of the Koreid army. Instead, a single rider moved towards the camp. It was Bogochu. After his horse had been killed from under him, Bogochu had been forced to run off the battlefield. He used the confusion surrounding Sengdom's injury to obtain another horse and escape, following the trail of Temujin's army. This was obviously good news, great news, but Temujin was still waiting for tidings of his son. He didn't have long to wait. Soon after Bogochu's appearance, another rider was seen heading towards the camp. As he got closer, the single man became two. It was Borogul and Ogodai. During the fighting, Ogodai had been hit in the neck by an arrow. Borogul had seen what had happened, and much like Jelme had done for Temujin, kept the wound open and clean by sucking on it. The secret history reports that when Temujin saw what had happened to his son, tears came to his eyes and there was a pain in his heart. He ordered a fire to be made and cauterized Ogodai's wound. In addition to saving Ogodai's life, Borogul brought news of the Koreid army. Instead of the attack Temujin was expecting and perhaps even fearing, Borogul reported that it was retreating away from the depleted Mongol force. So with the threat lifted, Temujin ordered his men to saddle up and move them further east to recuperate and regain strength. As they were moving out, one of Temujin's scouts came into the camp and provided him with an account of the goings-on in the Koreid camp. It turns out that Temujin's Mongols had narrowly avoided Togarul's wrath. With his son lying badly injured, the Koreid Khan swung between anger and sadness, one moment wanting to send his entire army against Temujin, the next lamenting the fact that he had turned against him. In the end, further conflict was averted by the intervention of clan leaders. Quote, My Khan, my Khan, don't attack them now. We prayed for a son to be born to you year after year, offering prayers and sacrifices to heaven, crying to heaven until Sengum was born. Let's protect the life of the son that you have. Most of the Mongol are already with us, led by Jamuga, Ultan and Kuchar. As for the ones who have gone off with Temujin, where can they go now? They've nothing to ride but a few horses, nothing over their heads but the branches of trees. If they don't come back to submit to us on their own accord, we can go out and round them up later. 
gather them up in our skirts like dried horse dung on a step. End quote. One accidental outcome of this decision was that it decided who the future leader of the Korean and Mongol people would be. For Temujin was nowhere near as weak as the secret history suggests. Yes, he may have had a relatively small band of followers with him at Kalakaljid, where he had effectively been ambushed, but sources suggest that this army contained between 3,000 and 4,500 men. With the respite afforded him by Ong Khan's decision to retreat, it provided Temujin with the time he needed to let his men relax and recover and to call in additional support. So, whilst the Uragud and Mangud hunted on one bank, Temujin sent out messengers to gather his followers and allies. Because this war wasn't finished. His preparations were briefly interrupted by the death of the Mangud leader, Kulyadar. Having been severely wounded leading the charge against the Koreid, he had finally succumbed to these injuries. Kulyadar's bones were buried with honour, and once Temujin's own position had been secured, he would make sure that the descendants of the Mangud leader were given status and positions befitting one of his earliest allies and strongest supporters. With this duty performed, Temujin then set about consolidating his position in eastern Mongolia. He sent Jurchadai, leader of the Urugud, to obtain the submission of the Ungarad tribe, who were camped around Lake Buir. If you remember, the Ungarad were the family clan of Temujin's wife Bort. According to the secret history, the clan appears to have been quite remarkable for being able to maintain their independence by diplomatic means rather than through warfare, and seems to have had a relatively peaceful existence. However, Temujin was in no mood to mess around. He told Jurchadai that if the Ungarad refused to submit to the Mongol leader, then the Urugud could use force to make them capitulate. In the end, though, there was no need for violence, and the Ungarad happily joined the Mongols. Whilst this was taking place, Temujin sent an ultimatum to each of his enemies. Ultan and Kuchar received a message reminding them of the oath they had sworn when they had made Temujin Khan. Now having broken it, the messengers intimated that they should no longer expect to be able to peacefully reside in the Mongol homeland. To Jamuga went the following threat. Quote, Since you couldn't stand to look me in the face, you've divided me from my father the Khan. When we were together, the first to rise each morning would drink from our father the Khan's blue cup. One morning, when I was first to arise, I drank from it, and you were jealous of me. Now you can empty the blue cup of our father the Khan, but how much longer will you have to drink from it? End quote. Sengum received a slightly more reconciliatory message, trying to soothe his worries about Temujin trying to replace him, and urging him to look after their father. The language used in the message makes it clear that Temujin views Ong Khan's decision regarding his successor as being resolved, and Sengum should start acting like the subordinate he was. Of course, Sengum didn't believe, or even appreciate, the manner in which Temujin addressed him. Quote, When the message was recited to Sengum, he answered, When did he ever speak of Ong Khan by saying, My father the Khan? Wasn't he just as fast to call him the old murdering bastard? And when did he ever call me his ander? Wouldn't he just as soon call me witless fool? These are transparent lies and the just provocation for war. End quote. Clearly, there was to be no peace between the pair. The last and longest message was, say, for Togrel. 
I've been a little bit torn over putting the whole thing into the podcast because it's over two and a half pages long. We've got quite a few things that need to be covered. But it is quite critical to the narrative. And it is also highly informative for the events that have taken place and the attitudes of the two men and moral dilemma being experienced. So I've decided to put it in. I recommend you go grab a cup of tea, sit back and enjoy what is essentially a part-threatening, part-pleading recap of the events up to this point. Quote, Go to my father the Khan and tell him, We've made our camp east of the Tunga stream, where the pasture is good. Our geldings are regaining their strength. Then say to him, My father the Khan, what have I done to you that caused you to scare me this way? And if you felt you had reason to punish me, then why did you have to destroy the peace of my people, who are also your own sons and daughters? You made them run from their homes, scattering the smoke that rose up from their tents. Why did you have to scare them as well? My father the Khan, has someone come with a knife and stabbed at your side? Has someone stood between us and provoked you to do this? My father the Khan, what did we promise each other on the banks of the Tula? In the Red Hills by Mount Jorkul, what did we say? Didn't we say, if some snake with sharp teeth tries to provoke us to fight, we won't even listen to what he has to say. Let's only listen to words we hear from each other's man's mouth. Did you bother to find out what I actually said before attacking me? Didn't we say, if some snake with long fangs tries to break up our friendship with slander, we won't even listen to his lies. Let's only believe what we know has come from the other man's tongue. Did you bother to speak to me face to face before becoming my enemy? My father the Khan, though I may not have been a perfect son, I haven't given you cause to search for anyone better. A cart with two axles, break one and the oxen can't pull it. Am I not like your second axle? A cart with two wheels, lose one and it can no longer move. Am I not like your second wheel? If we speak of the old days, I recall that after your father, Kyriakus Buryat Khan, passed away, you became Khan, saying, I am the eldest brother of forty sons. You had the two younger brothers executed, and when your brother Urkakara was also going to be killed, he escaped and surrendered himself to Inancha Bilga Khan of the Nayman. When they told your uncle that you had murdered your brothers, he attacked you and forced you to flee with only a hundred followers, down the Selenga to the Karagan Pass. There you came to my father, Yesagai the Brave, and said to him, Save my people for me, from my uncle Gurkhan. My father, Yesagai, said, I'll save your people for you. And his army drove Gurkhan back away from the Tangats. And then, in the black forest of the Tula River, you pledged yourself Ander with my father, Yesagai, and thanking him, you said, In thanks for what you've done, I'll return your help to the seed of your seed. May the heaven above and the earth below continue to protect me because of my gratitude. Then, when Urkakara and Inanchakana the Nayman attacked you, you deserted your people. With a few followers, you went to find shelter with the Khan of the Black Cathay, by the Chui River in the land of the Muslims. Before a year had gone by, you'd quarrelled with that ruler too, and travelling through the lands of the Uyghurs and Tanguts, living on the milk from five goats and the blood you could prick from a camel, you came back riding a blind yellow horse. When I heard that my father the Khan was in such a condition, I remembered the fact that you had declared yourself Ander with my father, and I sent messengers to meet you. 
Then came back to meet you myself at Lake Guega. I gathered taxes from my people and gave them to you, remembering that you were my father's ander. Isn't this why we declared ourselves father and son in the Black Forest by the Tula? I took you into my camp circle and cared for you that winter, and in the fall, when we attacked Togtogabeki and defeated him, I took all their herds, their grain, and their palace tents, and presented them to my father the Khan. There wasn't a day I allowed you to go hungry. There wasn't a month when you weren't given the things you needed. Then we went to war against Buryat Khan of the Nayman, and followed him over the Altai. From Uluk Targ down the Urungu River Valley, destroying his forces at Lake Kishilbashi. As we returned, we met with Kogsegu Sabrag, who'd gathered an army of Nayman to fight us in the Bayidarag Valley. Since it was already evening, we agreed to spend the night there, saying, We'll fight in the morning. Then you, my father the Khan, lit fires at your battle stations, and moved your army away up the Karasagul, under the cover of darkness. Early the next morning, I saw you had left, and saying, They treat us like we were burnt meat left from a sacrifice. I took my people out to the donkey back step, and Kogsegu Sabrag came after you, and took the wives and sons of Sengum, took half the people, the herds, and the provisions of my father the Khan, and Togobeki's two sons escaped from you, and took all their people back to rejoin their father at Bagujin. Then you, my father the Khan, said to me, Kogsegu Sabrag has taken my people. My son, send me your four heroes. I didn't act the way you had acted toward me. I sent you my soldiers, led by my four heroes, Borgochu, Mukali, Borogul, and Chilagun the Brave. Sengum's horse had been killed by an arrow, and a Nayman were about to take him. When my four heroes arrived, they saved him. They saved all his sons and his wives. And then, my father the Khan, you said to me, My people and possessions have been saved for me, saved by my son, Temujin, and his four heroes. Now, my father the Khan, what reason do you have to complain against me? Send me a messenger stating what offence I've committed against you. When Onkan heard these words, he cried, Ah, what have I done? Should I divide myself from my son? If I do, I divide myself from my solemn promises. Should I ignore what he said to me? If I do, I ignore my own obligations. He paused, and they could see he was deeply troubled. When he spoke again, he swore an oath, saying, When I see my son, if I harbour any evil against him, may my blood flow like this. And taking a knife used to sharpen arrows, he cut the tip of his little finger. The blood from the cut filled a small birch bark cup, which he gave to the messengers, saying, Give this to my son. End quote. The speech really outlines how much of a mess the relationship between Togril and Temujin was. And we find that it was a mess that was replicated throughout the two tribes. The Koreid and Mongol had operated in tandem for more than half a decade, and a close relationship had resulted in a lot of marriages taking place between the two groups. The sudden separation between the leaders now split allegiances and families. Individuals had to choose which side they supported, with the knowledge that this decision could affect whether their families became collateral. It was a choice that was made at all social levels. 
One of the messengers sent by Temujin to Onkon decided that he would rather stay in the Koreaid camp with his family, whilst Kassar would abandon his own family as prisoners of Onkon when he decided to return to his brother. But despite the societal problems caused by the split, it's clear that Temujin had no real intention to reconcile. The subtle threat at the beginning of the message to Onkon shows that he was really just playing for time to allow his scattered forces to come together. And once he was strengthened, everyone in the alliance against him would pay for their betrayal. Having delivered his ultimatums to the leaders of the Koreaid Mongol alliance, Temujin moved his own Mongols to the Baljuna River, and we have now arrived at the event known as the Baljuna Covenant, which, as I stated at the beginning of the episode, supposedly represents the lowest point of Temujin's leadership. But is this really the case? The setup is that Temujin and his broken army arrive at the river, out of food and water, exhausted with the threat of further attack looming over them. The water had been stirred up so much that it was full of silt and dirt, but the Mongol leader, his men, and their horses had to drink from it out of necessity. Temujin then makes a pledge to his followers that he will see events through to their conclusion, and everyone who drinks with him swears to follow him to the end and share in his hardship. It's a nice image. As a narrative device, it really adds to the idea that Temujin was the underdog, constantly fighting against the odds. But how does it hold up against the events as we've so far encountered them? We've already seen that at the end of the battle at Kalakaljid Sands, he had between three and four and a half thousand men with him. Temujin organised hunting parties to feed his army and sent messengers out to gather his forces and supplies. None of this really suggests a man in dire straits. Rather, it seems more like the reaction of a man who was unprepared for an attack and was now trying to regroup. He had come through Kalakaljid Sands largely thanks to the actions of the Mangud and Urugud and a slice of luck with the injury to Sengum. The fact that Temujin felt comfortable sending out confrontational messages to his enemies adds to the sense that he was far from beaten, and that he himself felt that it was only a minor setback in his plans. So with this in mind, let's look at what the sources say about the Baljuna Covenant. The two sources that I've used consistently throughout this series suggest that Baljuna was the place Temujin mustered his army. The Secret History states that Temujin moved his army to Lake Baljuna, it's a lake, not a river in this case, and there he accepted the submission of the Darulus clan, who were camping in the area. He was joined by a Muslim trader named Hassan, or Hassan, who brought a thousand sheep. Others then joined him, and there's no mention of the covenant itself. Most references in Rashid al-Din's Jami al-Tarawik again allude to Baljuna being a gathering point. Different groups came to join Temujin, and it states that Genghis Khan was in Baljuna and gathering soldiers from wherever he could. But Rashid al-Din does provide us with the first evidence that a covenant was sealed at the river. Quote, He went to Baljuna, a place where there were few small springs, insufficient for them and their animals too. Therefore, they squeezed water from the mud to drink. After that, they emerged from there and went to places that will be mentioned. The group that was with Genghis Khan at that time, in Baljuna, were few, and they are known as the Baljunatu, meaning that they were with him and did not desert him. Their rights were therefore firm, and they held precedence over the others. When they emerged from there, some of the soldiers and tribes regrouped around him, as will be told. End quote. The sources suggest that Baljuna was a desolate place, 
somewhere that Temujin's enemies wouldn't expect him to pull an army together and reorganise, primarily due to the lack of clean water and good fodder for the horses. Did this then make it the lowest point of his career, or rather a calculated move to throw his enemies off his trail? Mentally, it was probably one of the toughest points of his leadership. There was a significant threat still from Onkan, and Temujin's men were ragged and exhausted, and his band were separated from their main camp. I would suggest that the sealing of the Baljuna Covenant marks the point when this threat looked to have reduced, and Temujin knew that the rest of the army and supplies were moving to join them. It may have been his way to identify and honour those who had shared the hardship of the fight at Kalakaljid. Objections, corrections, or comments can be sent to the usual email address. For the last part of today's episode, let's look at who these Baljunatu were. For more information, we have to turn to the Wanshi. At this point, I have to highlight Francis Woodman Cleave's fantastic article, The Historicity of the Baljuna Covenant. The purpose of the article was to argue that the Baljuna Covenant was an event based in reality, a view that I have unquestionably taken. Cleves provides an analysis of the event using many of the biographies found within the Wan Shi. Although the article was written in 1955, it still seems to be highly regarded and referenced in many more recent studies. You can find the full source on the bibliography page and the episode update at mongolempirepodcast.com. This is what the Wan Shi says about the sealing of the Baljuna Covenant. Quote, the Emperor, having sent messengers to Onkan, immediately advanced his troops to capture the Nurgin, a branch of the Kungarad, and, having them proceed with him, reached the Beljuni River. The waters of the river at that time were turbid. The Emperor drank it for the purpose of swearing in the band. There was an Ikiris tribesman, Potu, who had been defeated by the Gorolad tribe. Consequently, he encountered the Emperor and participated in the covenant with him. Kassar lived separately at Mount Carrigan, his wife and children having been captured by Onkan, taking his young son Toku, he fled from Mount Carrigan. When his provisions were exhausted, after having rummaged for bird's eggs for food, he came to meet the others on the bank of the river. At that time, while Onkan was strong and mighty, the emperor was weak and uncertain of victory. The band was rather afraid. As for all those who drank with him the water of the river, they are called Yin Han Shui, those who drank the turbid water. It means that they had once shared hardship. End quote. Over the years, up to 19 men have been identified as part of this pledge. However, using biographies from the Wan Shi, Cleves was able to identify 14. Without going into too much irrelevant detail, the biographies typically state that such and such a man was present at Baljuna and took the waters with the emperor, or words to that effect. Not all the men he lists have biographies, and instead are referred to in the biography of other prominent people. The 14 put forward by Cleves represent an interesting cross-section of the groups active on the steppe. There are the men from the steppe, from tribes and clans who were both allied and hostile to Temujin. And for the first time, we have evidence of the international appeal of the Mongol leader. The list really highlights the interconnectedness of nomad and sedentary society. Of the 14, we have come across three so far in this podcast. Temujin and Kassar, and Jurchadai of the Urugud. There was one more ethnic Mongol named Achalug, 
Three men from the Korea tribe named Kedu, Hasana, and Chinkai. There was a Merkit tribesman, possibly named Saga. And then there was Botu Butu, or Butu Gurugan, who was an Akiris clan leader, and according to Rashid al-Din, the brother of Hogalun, Temujin's mother. The Suldus tribe was represented by Tagai Badur, and we have a man named Sorgan Noyan. The Wanshi identifies Sorgan Noyan as coming from the Seutai clan, but Cleves is uncertain about this man's origins. The last three men joined Temujin from beyond the frontiers of the steppe. There were two Kitan brothers, Yelu Ahai and Yelu Tua, who had defected to Temujin from the Jin. And the final man was a Muslim named Jabba Koji. I don't have too much information about Jabba Koji, but it seems likely he was a merchant who was also a proficient hunter. The section of his biography translated by Cleves states that he brought down a wild horse with an arrow. I will have to dedicate a section of future episodes to the non-step elements operating in Temujin's army. Those were the 14 Baljinatu, as recorded by the Wan Shi, and identified by Cleves. Temujin, Kassar, Jerchadai, Achilog, Kaidu, Ha-San-Na, Chinkai, Saugur, Botu-Butu, Takai-Badu, Sorgan-Noyan, Yellow-Ahai, Yellow Tahua and Jabba Koji. Of these men, ten probably travelled with Temujin to Onkan's camp to sort out the marriage proposal, whilst the other three joined him prior to the Battle of Kalakaljid Sands. In recognition of the deeds of these men, who had shared the muddy waters of the Baljuna River, Temujin would ensure that their descendants, much like those of the deceased Kuliadar, would enjoy positions of honour within the future Mongol government. So, with the covenant sealed, an army gathering, and ultimatums delivered, in the next episode of the Mongol Empire podcast, we should finally get an answer to the question over who will be the successor to Togarul Ong Khan. If you want more information about the events of this episode, head over to mongolempirepodcast.com to find a list of the sources used in this and all the previous episodes, along with family trees and a map of the five main tribes of the Mongolian steppe. If you want to give me any feedback, object to my interpretation of the Baljuna Covenant, or you just want to say hi, you can contact me by email, which is Cory C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or I have a very limited presence on Twitter, which is at Mongol Empire Pod. Otherwise, until the next episode, take care and thanks for listening.